Hi, my name is Eliane Goldstein, and you're listening to The Effect on Us. When I went downstairs to play with the kids with whom I'd played all my life, all of a sudden they're calling me a dirty little Jew and to walk in the sidewalk where I belonged. I had the courage to say, I have to get out. I was just so infused with the will to live that I said, I don't mind leaving my parents. Do you experience any pain from what they would do? Every single second of my life, and I will for the rest of my life. The Effect on Us podcast. Here's Eliane Goldstein. The Effect on Us is a podcast for people of all ages to learn about controversial subjects and the ties it has to people nowadays. In this season, the focus of the series is the Holocaust. You'll be able to hear some of the best survival stories I've ever heard from people that went through the Second World War and learn more about the effect the Holocaust had on people from Generation 1 to Generation 3. Did you know that Jewish Germans were not allowed to marry non-Jewish Germans? In this episode, I'm talking to Rena Quint, who had to pretend to be a boy during the war. What is your name? My name is Rena Quint. That's my name now, but it's my sixth name. I had six different names from the time I was born until I was 10 years old. What are those names? Well, the reason I have those different names, my, my name, because every time one of my mothers was killed, I got another mother or somebody who pretended to be a mother, and then she gave me another name. And then when she disappeared, it was another one and another and another and another, until after the war, when I was liberated from Bergen-Belsen, I was taken to Sweden, where I met another woman who brought me to America, and she gave me her daughter's name. I'll tell you all about that. And then I was adopted by an American family, and they gave me the name Rena. My name started off being Fredja, which is a Polish name, Fredel, which is the Yiddish name. Then I became a boy or pretending to be a boy. So I was Freyan. And then after that, when I went to Sweden, I was Fanny. They didn't like that much so much. Uh, Fredel means joy. And the American, 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 American parents gave me the name Rena. So that's how I happened to have six names. I also have two birthdays. And I was born in Poland and in Germany. I was a boy and I was a girl. It was a lot of different things. And it was very hard for anybody to believe this, including me. But now I have all the documents and all the certificates. I went back to Poland. I found my real birth certificate. I found my parents' marriage license. I found my brother's names. I found my house. I have pictures and I can prove everything, which makes, makes me feel happy. How old are you now? I'm 86. So what was your family like before the war started? Do you know anything about that? I know very little. I was three and a half years old when the war started. And the first ghetto that was organized was in my hometown in Pietrakov. And I remember having two brothers, David and Yassi. And we lived in a house, and I have a picture of the house, and across the way from the house, there was a, a place where they sell ice cream, a little... A little kiosk like that. And I remember my brothers used to pull me on a sled. And then the war started and everything got very, very bad. And the bombs started going and my mother took us down to the cellar where there were potatoes and other things. The smell of smell, the cellar smelled and and it was um, very damp. But we stayed there until we were brave enough to come out. And shortly after that, they took my father away to slave labor camps. But I remained in the house with my mother. 
And um, I know what my mother's furniture looks like because I was in the house, but I don't really remember it as a little girl. So a lot of the things that I remember now, I've learned later. Was there um, any anti-Semitism? At three and a half, I don't think I knew what anti-Semitism was. But, but like in general, like, like do you know? If there was I am any sure there was. I'm sure, yes, I, I read a lot of books and I know that the Jews uh, had a hard time. But in Pietrukov, there was a big synagogue and there were other smaller synagogues. Rabbi Lau, whose grandson is the chief rabbi of Israel now, and before that, his father, who was the son of the rabbi in our hometown, had a big synagogue and we were able to go. And at one point, Poland was a place with three and a half million Jews lived and they considered that their home. But there was always anti-Semitism. And during the war, there was a lot of collaboration. And the Polish woman who lives in my apartment now told me that war was bad for everybody. But as soon as the Jews were taken out and sent to Treblinka, she and her family and her neighbors were able to move into our houses and take whatever they needed. And she's still living there. That's terrible. It really is. Um, so, uh, so you said some things about having multiple mothers. Yes. Um, I had at least six. Can you tell me about that, how that happened? Yes. Um, I had a mother whose name was Sarah Lichtenstein, and she had three children, my two brothers and me. And uh, when the war started, I lived in the house with her and my father. My father was taken away, and she remained as my mother. But uh, when I was six years old, they were taking all the Jews out of Israel, and there was an action. And uh, soldiers came to our door, and they banged down their wall, and they kept saying, Schnau, rouse, rouse, fast. And they took us, beating us and, and shooting at us and dogs rolling into the synagogue big synagogue. 2,000 people couldn't get into the synagogue, so as many as they could, they got in. And I have pictures of the synagogue. I've been back many times because I've gone with groups to Poland. And um, there was a mural on the wall of the uh, uh, Aron Kodesh, which is where the Sefer Torah, the five books of Moses, are held. And you can see bullet holes there. So there were shooting and bullets all around. And I don't know where I got the nerve, the chutzpah, how I was so, I don't know how it happened, but there was a man in the back of the um, synagogue, and I'm not sure he was, but he may have been my uncle, and he beckoned to me, and he said, run, and I ran. Maybe my mother pushed me, maybe God pushed me. I don't know how a little six-year-old is willing to let go of her mother. I don't know how my mother was labeled willing to let go of me, but I ran out. That was the last time I saw my mother and my brothers. This man took me to my father, who was working in a slave labor camp. And my father hid me for a while. And that was, that was no longer possible. He dressed me as a boy. He changed my name. He said I was 10 years old. So I was now a man of 10 instead of a girl of six. And we worked very hard, which I can tell you about. But at one point, they decided they didn't want any Jews left there. So we were transported again to the Imschlagplatz, and um, uh, we were on a train taking us from Poland to Germany. And when we got there, we jumped out from the train and 
we we had nothing to eat while we were in those terrible cars. So we used the snow to eat it and we used the snow to drink it and we used the lights to look around who was still there. And while we were getting used to this situation, Germans came and they said they're taking us to camps. And my father realized when you go into a camp, the first thing you have to do is get undressed. And he realized if I would get undressed, they would see I'm not one of the boys. And he would, um, they would kill me and they would kill him and anybody else who helped me. So he met a school teacher and he asked her whether she would keep an eye on me. And he gave me some pictures of my family and he promised to meet me in our hometown. He never kept his promise. I never saw him again. He was taken to Buchenwald and somehow he, he disappeared. I guess he was murdered. And then I was taken with the women to Bergen-Belsen and I had a new mother. But in Bergen-Belsen, she disappeared. She must have died. And somebody else came up. I don't even remember these people's names. And then somebody else and somebody else. And then I don't know how many people there were. But at the end of the war, I was taken to Sweden with the orphans. And while I was in the hospital, a Christian couple wanted to come in and, and adopt me. But the people around me said that I was Jewish and I belonged in Israel. And no, in, pa in Palestine, because there was no Israel in 45. Israel wasn't born until, remember when? 48. 48. Right. So this was 45. So there was a woman in that camp and she had, her, her brother had gone to the United States and he sent her tickets for herself, her son and daughter. And her daughter died while in Sweden after the war. And so she asked me if I wanted to be her daughter and go with her to America. And I always wanted to have a mother. So I came. So I got her name, the child's name, her birthday. She didn't need the birthday. She was dead. And her mother. So she became my other mother, maybe my fifth mother. And we came to the United States together. And life would have been fine. But after the war, so many people were sick, like her daughter, and she died. And when she died, I was left alone again. And her family didn't know what to do with me, but they found a couple who had no children. And I went there for a Shabbat and they adopted me. And they became my sixth parents, my sixth mother and father. And after that, I had a normal life from the age of 10 till now. What was it like to be a boy? Very scary, very scary. I had learned to speak like a boy. I had to work very hard like the men. I had to be careful going to the bathroom. Everything was constant, constant fear. And the men tried to help me. But I, I always knew that I didn't belong. And, um, and I was just lucky that people helped me. People always helped me. I know that sometimes you hear about uh, people being in concentration camps who are out for themselves. I can't say that if I had not had help between the ages of three and a half and nine and a half, I couldn't possibly have survived. So being a boy for me was very difficult. Did you understand what was going on when you had to be a boy? Of course, you have to grow up very quickly. My father told me, we spoke and he said, there are no girls here. There are no women here. And in order for you to stay with me, we have to pretend you're a boy, which means he cut my hair. He found something for me to wear. I don't know how, but he was a tailor and maybe he could take somebody else's pants and things like that. And he taught me how to speak Polish in the grammar of a boy. And I became a boy. That's it. There just was no choice. When you say the grammar of a boy, is there like different grammar? Is it like masculine and feminine? 
That's right. It's masculine and feminine. So in American English, you don't have that. But in Hebrew, what other language do you know? I know Hebrew and French, where they also have masculine and feminine. Okay. So that's what it is. So I had to learn to, to for the masculine because I had been a girl. And you have to be very careful. I can't imagine that it was very good. I spoke Yiddish. And Yiddish also has. Uh, yeah, I had to be very careful to be a boy. But I did it. I'm here. It's impossible that I could have done it, right? Impossible a six-year-old girl could pretend to be a 10-year-old boy. Well, obviously, it's possible because you did it. Well, everything was possible because I'm here. I can just prove to you after all these years. And I've had a good life, but it started at the age of 10 instead of when most people start at the age of when they're born. So what was it like for you to um, to move around between different mothers? I thought it was normal that you had a mother and then life in the war wasn't normal, but your mother disappeared. And instead of crying or waiting for her, you better find another mother. But I'm not sure that I found them or if they found me. Somehow or other, I guess it was mutual. Maybe they lost their daughter or maybe they were good women, or maybe they had compassion, or they were feeling sorry for me. I don't know how it happened, but somehow or other, I could not have survived without them. They were like angels that God sent for me, except they all died. So so you said that they just disappeared. Like, that's how you saw it when you were six years old? They just disappeared? Yeah, that's exactly what happened. I had a mother, and she wasn't there. Will she ever come back? I don't know, but she didn't. And then the next mother took care of me, and then she wasn't there. And then other people weren't there either. It wasn't just my mother's. People just kept on disappearing. And then later on, my father disappeared. And in Bergen-Belsen, every day, people died, and they just were thrown out with their dead bodies. And that's what happened to people. Did you ever find records of these women? Uh, well, the I found off my mother. I found my mother. I found my mother's... Um, marriage license to my father and I found that she owned a store which was very early I found that he, she had a prenuptial agreement she apparently came she, from a rich family so she wrote down all the things she owned before they were married so in case of a divorce she keeps what she has and he keeps what he has but of course they never lived uh, long enough and then I have records of the woman who brought me to Sweden because we came to America, and in Sweden there were records, and in America there were records, and she had a son, and her son, who was older than my, who became like a brother, except that I was adopted shortly after that, um, he died, but his wife and his daughter came to visit me in Israel, so they told me a lot about him. Speaking of brothers, did you ever find out what happened to your biological brothers? Uh, well, I have no proof, but that whole action that all those people who were put into the synagogue in 42 were taken to Treblinka on those terrible cattle cars. And when they got to Treblinka, they were put into gas chambers and they were exterminated by gas. And then their bodies thrown on big pits on the side of, uh, of the camp. And then later on, Himmler put, tell, tell the Germans to put... Um, uh, flammable liquids on them to burn all the bodies so that there would be no trace that they haven't done anything like that. So I imagine that they were killed in Treblinka. And in Israel, we have a day called Yom Kaddish Klali, which is the day that you don't know where your parents 
when they died or where they are buried. And that's the time that I use for their yard site, the day that they, I don't know their anniversary of their death or where they could have been buried. Nothing. I would like to go back to something that you said before about you having two birthdays. Yeah. Okay. So I was born um, in 1945. After the war, I went to Sweden and I met Anna, who became my new mother. And her daughter, Fanny, was born December 15th, no, February, February 15th, 1936. So she gave me her daughter's birthday. Her daughter didn't need it. And she gave me the fact that she was born in Germany and her mother's name and her father's name and the city she was born. And I became that child. In 1989, we already made Aliyah and I started working in Yad Vashem. I volunteered there. I became a guide in the museum. And I went back with, they had a trip to Poland and I went back and I went to the Hall of Records and I found my real birthday, which is December 15, 1930. So that's how I happened to have two birthdays and my children and grandchildren celebrated two parties for me. And, um, and actually I'm two months older, but in my passport, I keep the birthday I got in 45 because you can't change a birthday. They would never believe me when I get into an airport. How You've got two different birthdays. Who are you? So it's just easier to keep that one. Yes. So, uh, so you moved to America with your new family, and then they died. A mother and she died. The mother died. Um, Sigmund changed his name to Stanley and Dr. Phillips, and he went to Syracuse University. And I was adopted by an American family who had no children, and they treated me very, very well. I had a good education. I had music lessons. I had a lot of friends. Um, I did all the things that teenagers did. I never, ever talked about being adopted or having been a Holocaust survivor. I learned English. So when I speak now, I speak like an American. I had to learn very quickly, but nobody spoke any other language. So that's the language, Yiddish maybe. That's the language I spoke. And um, and then I married a man whom I was married to for 60 years, who loved me very much and wrote me notes every day. And three years ago, I wrote a book. You're interested in, it's called A Daughter of Many Mothers. And it has my picture when I was 10 years old. And on the back here, he made me a surprise party. And inside there are a lot of pictures of of. My, my hometown, the house I lived in, the synagogue, Treblinka, Bergen-Belsen, uh, everything that I'm telling you, including the notes. And it sells on Amazon if anybody is interested in having it. And um, a daughter of many mothers, and it has like a quilt on the cover. And the quilt shows you that um, it was a combination of so many. Six mothers is more than most people have. You said that um, the family that adopted you never mentioned that you were a survivor and that you didn't talk about it. So what made you want to start talking about it? When I came back, well, first of all, in 1981, there was a gathering of Holocaust survivors. And my children said, why don't we go? There may be somebody else survived, just the way you survived. And it's a miracle that you did. Maybe somebody else did. And we just never found them. My adoptive parents had to look for family because you can't adopt a child in America until their family says, you know, we don't want her. And they found two cousins. We said they couldn't, they couldn't take me. Alistair was a 
single place and they didn't have a family. So when they adopted me, we never talked about it. So in 1981, we came here and um, we asked a lot of questions and we met a lot of people. Nobody ever heard of me or my family. And so I wrote to a place called Arlson, which is an international tracing bureau. And they wrote back saying, yes, I was born in Petrograd. My name was Fredja Lichtenstein, my mother's name, my, my, my father's name, my brother's name, the place I lived in. So I got the address and I was in Bergen-Belsen, not a date not indicated because Bergen-Belsen had been completely burnt down. So I have no idea when I, I know when I, I don't know when I came in or out. Also, I was a child, but my father was taken to Buchenwald and I found with Arlson, with that tracing bureau, his train schedule when he was taken. But then there was no, not, nothing mentioned of him afterwards. So I guess he was murdered. So um, when I came back, my son, who was in the eighth grade, his teacher asked if anybody knew of a Holocaust survivor who would speak. So he suggested me. And the teacher called me and she said, I, I don't quite understand because David is a smart. Why would he say something like that about you? You come and help out in school and you speak English. And she didn't think I was a survivor. And I said I was. And so I started speaking and I was terrible because I cried at every second sentence. But then in 1984, we came to Israel and I joined Yad Vashem and I became a volunteer there. And in 89, when I found my birth certificate in my home and I got on the bus with the people from Yad Vashem, they were as excited as I was. And when I came back, they said, you have to tell your story. And then I started giving testimony in Yad Vashem. And I've been doing that ever since. And I think it's important. So anybody who asks me, including you, and this week I had like six of them because I spoke in, um, in India and in the Philippines and in Italy and in uh, Tel Aviv. And, you know, it was the um, uh, International Holocaust Day. So everybody wanted to have an interview. So I feel that I have to do this. It's very important. Yes. Thank you. So, so you started to give your testimonies in Yad Vashem. But uh, before you mentioned that you used to work there, right? Yeah. Uh, what was it like working there? Well, it, it brought back a lot of memories, and sometimes it was very difficult, but I really felt it was important. And as you go over and over and over in the museum every second day, you get used to it. And giving testimonies, I find that I've met people from all over the world, and people were very interested. And the, the people I spoke to now on Zoom, I mean, I haven't been out of my house now for a very long time. So I do everything like I'm doing with you on Zoom now. And at 86, they didn't think that I could really get into it, but I did. So um, I did I did Zoom and I did uh, Microsoft uh, uh, meetings. I, I did all these different things. And uh, and I think it's important. And John, John came to visit me a few years ago, maybe four years ago. And he also, one of the interviews that I did this week was uh, about three or four years ago, a man came and took pictures. Maybe you're familiar with, there, familiar with that. And now they wanted to interview me on CBS, how I felt about the picture. I never even saw that picture because Yad Vashem has been closed. And I haven't spoken, I haven't been any place. So um, they called and they asked me and uh, they showed me the picture. And it meant very little to me because it's just a photograph. Is there anything that you want to, is there any message that you want to tell people that are listening to you right now? 
Yeah, I think that war is terrible for everybody. Everybody. Nobody ever wins at a war. Six million Jews were killed, but also um, Americans and Russians and homosexuals and, and everybody that you can think of. Everybody was affected by the war. And we don't have to have wars. We have to learn to live in peace. There's enough water for everybody. There's enough food. There's enough land. If we can learn to talk to each other and have peace, I think that's very, very important. And I would do anything to help in that way. I also think that people um, like you and, and like my children and grandchildren should marry and bring in other ch children into this world to um, replace the people who were murdered. And in my case, many of my children have the names of my parents and, uh, and my brothers. And now my other parents, I had two sets of parents, the ones who gave birth to me and the ones who adopted me. So now my grandchildren are using the names of, because those are the grandparents they knew. So I think we have to live our life to the fullest, love as much as we can and live as much as we can and sing as much as we can and enjoy everything and make sure that the Holocaust and other tragedies are not forgotten so that we can come on for better times. Before we wrap up, is there anything that you want to add that you feel like I might have missed or you might have missed? I'm sure I've left a lot of things out, but I don't know. I mean, I, I left out all the different things of what it was like to be on the cattle cars or what it was like dying or that I found my temperature chart in Sweden. In 1945, I was in Sweden and I could prove that I had typhus and diphtheria. I don't remember these things. I don't think I knew what they were, but I have records. You didn't want to see the pictures, but I have all those pictures blown up so that I could show people that I'm, it, it doesn't, it sounds like I'm making up some of these things but I'm not. It's something that most people wouldn't think could ever happen, but they exactly. do happen. That's so it's right. not like there was a miracle it that it, It's not that people think no. that you're making it up. It's that they think that it's unimaginable. That's right. That's right. And I, I believe that also. And sometimes when I say, how do you know you were in Bergen-Belsen? For a long time, I said to how do I know I was in Bergen-Belsen? Maybe I was in Buchenwald. Maybe I was in McDonald's. Maybe I was there. When I found my records, and they said Bergen-Belsen, and the American Jewish community took me out of Bergen-Belsen, and Sweden put me on a boat to go to Sweden and Bergen-Belsen, uh, from Bergen-Belsen to Sweden, and the different places I was in Sweden, then I know I have proof. And it makes me feel good that I have proof. Yeah. It should make you okay. feel good because then people have to believe you. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. I really appreciate it. Good luck to you. Isn't it amazing how she found the woman that saved her life and her former best friend after all those years? Join me next time for a very special episode, the first of a several part series where I talk to Ben Lesser, who really went through it all. If you like this episode, please like and subscribe and tell your friends. This is Eliane Goldstein. Tune in next time to The Effect on Us. And remember, history will not repeat itself. Bye.